Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Someone who has always folded history into her analysis is Lizanne Saunders. She is at Charles Schwab, and she has been a foundation voice on belief in the stock market for decades. We're thrilled to get an update from Ms. Saunders this morning. Lizanne, I've got to go to the money question always with you, which is what do you observe at Schwab of what people are doing with their money? Are they in this bull market? So if you, from a fund flow perspective, uh, consistent with with broad aggregates, uh, you've seen money actually coming out of equities in the last several months, uh, more into fixed income. More recently, in the last couple of weeks, where you have seen aggressiveness in terms of flows is in the ETF space, particularly the QQQs, which is the NASDAQ 100 inflows, and then the Russell 2000, the IWN uh, outflows. That's really where we're seeing some aggressive action. But what we have seen in is not consistent with what some of the headlines have been around some of the newly minted smaller day traders, where in that cohort you have seen some really rampant speculation. But broadly among our investors, that's not what we've been seeing. I mean, this is interesting, folks. And the Cubes folks of the NASDAQ 100, of course, a proxy for Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and the rest of them as well. Lizanne, can you predict a catalyst or event that will finally give us a tangible shift from Cubes over to Russell 2000? What's going to make that happen? I can't predict anything. Uh, you know, you've seen the, the the Russell have bouts of uh, relative outperformance over the last couple of months. You know, they're, they're trying to develop that outperformance. I think we would have to see right. stable in sort of the financial system, a real sense that we're back in recovery mode because a fundamental differential between small caps in the aggregate and large caps, it's still fairly wide. When you look at debt to equity ratios, when you look at the percentage of the Russell that are so-called zombie companies, when you look at the percentage of the Russell that are not profitable and likely won't be for an extended period of time versus the larger cap indexes, there's really no comparison. But if we really start to see the recovery kick into gear, that tends to bring a bias down the cap spectrum. So one month of of good data, I think, doesn't suggest a V rebound. I think we'd have to see a few months of it to believe that the recovery is sustainable such that everybody can participate. Lizanne, this is the huge debate, the ingredients needed for a durable rotation into the more cyclical areas of this market. Do you have any confidence that this V, this bounce that we witness off the bottom as we reopen can continue? Oh, I don't I don't think to the extent of the percentage increases off the bottom we saw are, are able to persist. Absolutely not. I think mathematically, it just doesn't work that way. The, the law of small numbers is such you compress the data to such a significant degree, it's very natural that the bounce back in percentage terms is going to be massive. But you you can't extrapolate that into the future. And that's why I think what we're more likely to see is rolling W's. So you get the, the shot up initially, and then you back down a little bit. And the second order economic effects are not just specific to second waves, if you can even consider the, the first wave over of the virus. There are second wave economic effects that are coming down the pike, regardless of whether we see additional increased cases in the virus, temporary layoffs becoming permanent job losses, what we're seeing in the uh, bankruptcy uh, environment. So I, I just think there's going to be a, a pretty choppy recovery, um, even absent the implications of the virus. 
And Lizanne, that means that tech remains the safe haven play here. I'm wondering, though, how much the recent regulatory pressures could threaten that, given the Facebook boycott among advertisers. We know Facebook is meeting with some of them today. This idea that that could actually accelerate some of the pressure coming from Washington, D.C. How much are you watching this? Well, you know, this this risk about regulatory pressure is not a new one. This is not really a, an election cycle risk. This has been ongoing for uh, a couple of years now. So clearly it has not prevented many of those names from uh, doing well. I think as you get closer to the election, depending on how far up the priority spectrum you see it on either uh, candidate, then I think it becomes an issue. But with most issues that become election platform issues, they don't tend to really start to impact stocks until around Labor Day or post-Labor Day environment. So I'd be more focused on, on the messaging around regulatory environment and, and of course, the, the ability to do something depending on the divisions in Congress uh, as a post-Labor Day phenomenon. Lizanne, I think a lot of people in the market would agree with you that the regulatory train moves very slowly, if at all. On the other hand, how much are these boycotts just an excuse for big companies to cut their advertising budgets in a highly uncertain environment that's going to affect the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters of the world, regardless of policy? Oh, I think companies across the spectrum of industries are probably looking for some sort of margin edge in this very difficult environment. So, you know, I don't cover, as you know, Lisa, I don't cover individual companies, so I'm not, I'm not down in the weeds with these companies. But it's not surprising uh, to see an attempt at, at reigning in the cost side of the equation in this environment. Lizanne, you were just out of Delaware or maybe starting at Delaware when there was a modest moment, the crash of 1987. I was Mr. out. Mr. Rukeyser on a Friday night. <laughs> Mr. Rukeyser on a Friday night had Sir John Templeton and a few other worthies, Robert Kirby, a capital group, out to calm the nation down. Right now on Global Wall Street, we need to calm the nation. Is our new Lou Rukeyser, Jerome Powell, is he the one doing the calming of the nation in the financial markets? Um, maybe without the uh, the humorous quips that we all remember uh, Lou for, and I certainly won't forget 1987, particularly the Friday night before 87, where you know my boss at the time, the late great Marty Zweig, came on and actually predicted. Yeah. Uh, the crash that was to come three days later. And little did I know how difficult uh, that was to do. But I do think, I think Powell is doing a very good job. He's also learned to sort of stay on message a little bit more um, than maybe in the yes. past half ago when tripped him up a little bit. But what I think the most important message Powell has been imparting is not about you know, we, we will be here. We, there is This is an uncertain uh, period of time, but we've got the ammunition. We're not going to run, uh, run out of ammunition. I think the most important messaging has been, well, two, two of them. One, some of these tools will go back in the toolbox when it's appropriate, that this is not ad infinitum in terms of these new facilities. But also he, he has repeatedly emphasized that there's a difference in the Fed's mind and should be in investors' minds between financial system stability of which the Fed is a big part, and financial market volatility. So I think he's trying to get the message that volatility in the financial markets in and of itself shouldn't trigger Fed action unless it becomes a risk to the financial system more broadly. So uh, that, to me, is the most resonant message that he has been putting out there, not just in this recent period, but the, over the past year. Lizanne, love catching up with you. Lizanne Saunders there of Charles Schwab. 
trying to adjust and adapt. It always helps to talk to one of the major bankers of global Wall Street. We did that this morning, Francine Lacroix and myself. Here's our conversation, highlights of it, with Jess Staley of Barclays. I think there is a sort of gathering storm out there. I mean, the furlough program, um, you know, being from the States, it's quite amazing to watch and how significant the program is in the UK and how that has buffered the impact of this incredible uh, 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 medical crisis. Um, uh, but the government uh, has been very strong in terms of you know, putting small business loans out uh, guaranteed by the government. We ourselves have done over 200,000 small business loans in the last couple of weeks, about six and a half billion pounds, um, uh, all the way to major commercial paper programs being bought by Her Majesty's Treasuries. And we've done over 10 billion pounds of that type of, of lending as, as well. So the, uh, the reaction has been quite strong. And what that has enabled us to do is you know, stay focused on the financial integrity of, of Barclays. Barclays being a very strong, highly capitalized bank uh, is critical if we're going to play our role in helping the UK and the world uh, recover from this, uh, from this virus. We were fortunate, Francine, we walked in with the highest level of capitalization in the history of Barclays, 13.8% capital to our risk-weighted assets, very liquid. So I think we had the strength of a very strong balance sheet and a profitable underlying business that hopefully we can be a no, a, a, a firewall as we try to get through this economic crisis. Jess, if you look at the deterioration, deterioration of the UK economy, is it actually worse than expected? And again, what does that mean for your client activity? I think right now the contraction in the economy is probably less than we would have expected or anticipated a month or a month and a half ago. Spend has started to recover. It's not down nearly as much as it was a couple of months ago. Um, you know, aided by the government programs, aided by the furlough programs. As you said, I do think there's a little bit of storm gathering. Once, you know, we have 90,000 mortgage payment holidays out there. We've given payment holidays to our credit card holders. You've got the furlough program. A lot of that is going to start to end as we come into the end of June and July and August. And it will be interesting to see um, uh, um, uh, what happens to unemployment at that point in time, what happens with the furlough program. So we're clearly not out of the woods yet. I think we've recovered more right now than we would have thought a little bit ago. Uh, but there is that second storm coming uh, in a couple of months, I think. Ernst Young is really under the gun here. There's clearly a massive missed audit at Wirecard as well. I want you to speak for the rigor of auditing at Barclays. Do you feel there's any mysteries on your book in relation to Wirecard? Do you think the auditing's tight enough just on simple things like what's an X number of banks? Yeah, I know we started taking a cautious approach to Wirecard quite some time ago. Um, uh, you know, so again, uh, very mindful of where all of our- Well, well wait, 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 wait. Jess, Jess, some time ago, like last Thursday or a few <laughs> years ago. <laughs> I'd say uh, uh, a long time ago, not, not last Thursday. You know, Wirecard did have you know questions uh, 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 before, so we've been you know conservative in how we dealt with them. They are a very big business. They've got a very big business in the UK as well. It's a very tough uh, situation. Obviously, uh, it seems like something quite significant was missed, uh, and I think uh, and I think the markets will pay a price for it. Mr. Staley there of Barclays with some humor over <laughs> Wirecard. And 
policy, a huge focus for all of us worldwide. Let's start the conversation with David Leibovitz of JP Morgan Asset Management. David, let's start there. What's your focus a little bit later this afternoon? So, you know, I, th- I think we're going to be looking for, for a couple of things. One, uh, the reaffirmation of the message that, as you guys point out, you know, more stimulus is almost required at, at this juncture. But also any hints, um, particularly from Powell, um, as to the trajectory that monetary policy may take here over the next couple of months. You know, they've finally gotten a lot of these corporate credit facilities up and running. And in the original term sheets, those were actually set to expire uh, at the end of September. And so does he suggest that perhaps there's more runway around some of these new Fed programs, I think will be particularly important in complementing anything that we hear from Mnuchin uh, with respect to uh, more more on the fiscal side over the next couple of weeks here. David, I thought the note from Kasman and Faroli from J.P. Morgan this weekend was absolutely spectacular. And they talked about things like yield curve, curve control and being on Mars or being on Venus. Your wing of the ship is on planet Earth, and you have to actually invest money in this great uncertainty. What is your six-month strategy at J.P. Morgan Asset Management? So we, we continue to kind of play it the way that we've been approaching things over the course of the past couple of months. Um, you know, when we were seeing that nascent rotation into value a couple of weeks back, we, we really held back on embracing a lot more cyclicality in portfolios because by our lights, this was really about the, the delta or the rate of change. Uh, and we assumed that at some point the market would begin to focus on the absolute level. So still really grounding portfolios in high-quality assets on the equity side. That's things like technology and then from a regional standpoint, the U.S., uh, on the fixed income side, you know, barbelling between investment-grade corporate bonds and various securitized uh, types of paper, given the inherent Fed support in those markets with Treasury bonds, because we do anticipate um, that the markets are going to be a little bit choppy here. I think that there's a clear expectation that, that more stimulus is needed. Um, I'm not sure the path to get there is going to be smooth. And at the same time, you know, as the economy is back online for longer periods of time, these big jumps in the data like we saw in retail sales a few weeks back uh, are going to become fewer and more infrequent. And so I think investors are going to focus increasingly on where things stand, and that's going to drive a relatively volatile and, and range-bound market here through the, uh, through the end of the year. David, is most reliable investment thesis at this point purely investing on policy, purely investing on more Fed stimulus, on some sort of fiscal bailout package from Washington, D.C., rather than look at any of the data, rather than looking at the rising trade tensions between the chi- China and the U.S., and potentially a boycott with social media? So, you know, I, I think that those, some of those other issues are, are definitely secondary right now. I, I think that Fundamentally, you know, when I was thinking about this earlier today, and it all comes down to cash flow, right? And right now, the market doesn't care where that cash flow is coming from. Is it generated organically by the companies? Is it vis-a-vis various rounds of fiscal and monetary stimulus, right? They just want to know that the economy is going to keep running, even if we're kind of artificially propping it up with Fed and government support. But I do think that as we get closer to the election in November, uh, in particular, you may see some of these secondary issues, particularly the more political issues, uh, really begin to crystallize in, in the eyes of the market and just become another source of angst. You know, you can, you can ride the liquidity wave for, for only so long, and, and at some point the economy is going to be left to stand on its own two feet, and that's when things like the corporate fundamentals and the outlook for policy are going to become increasingly important. Uh, again, I think that that's going to coincide with the election uh, later on this year. 
Well, that might be a story for several months away in the here and now, David. It's a market, as you point out, that is suffering in the middle of this tug of war between the direction of the recovery, still positive, expected to be so for the next several weeks and months, and the pace of it and the realisation that we will be below potential for a long, long time. So long as we maintain a positive trajectory, do you think that's sufficient to drive further equity gains? So I, I do think that, that equity upside is going to be a little bit capped until we get more clarity from the corporations themselves. And so I think one of the, the issues that we're going to be particularly focused on over the next uh, couple of weeks is as companies begin to record, report their second quarter profit data, are they providing guidance for what they expect in the remainder of 2020 uh, and the beginning of 2021? And I think that you know the, the market has been kind of standing on this three-legged stool here of what's going on with case growth, the policy response and, and the outlook for economic reopening and the trajectory of corporate profits, um, we, we see what's going on with the virus. We, we see what's going on with the policy response. There's still a lot of uncertainty around how all of this is going to translate into actual economic activity and corporate profitability over the next 18 months. And I think that's going to be the key thing that you know either pushes equities further to the upside or perhaps caps their potential over the next, uh, the next couple of months. I mean, David, I get all this chit-chat, but the bottom line is everybody's recalibrating their fundamental investment theories. Dr. Siegel down at Wharton is beginning to question 60-40 or 60-30-10. He's even advocating 80-20. You've got a pension plan out in California talking about leveraging up to get yield. It seems like a world tipped upside down. What's the allocation you would recommend off a traditional 60-40 split? So I, I think that, you know, you increasingly <clears throat> need to take more risk in, in equities. That is inherently uh, difficult for, for some investors to do, but we would, we would add some equity exposure, assuming that return targets are in line with the numbers that, that we see most clients trying to hit. Um, you know, within fixed income, we wouldn't get rid of fixed income. It, you need that ballast in portfolios, and particularly given the view that things might be a little bit choppy here going forward, we want to make sure that we have that protection uh, if markets were to strongly move to to the downside. But, you know, what you're really seeing emerge from all of this is a need for uncorrelated sources of income. And one of the things that we've seen a lot of the institutional investors that we work with do over the past couple of years is take some of that exposure that has, had historically been oriented towards fixed income and reallocate that towards core real assets, things like real estate and infrastructure. You obviously need to be selective, but what that allows you to do is increase the overall income that your portfolio generates without adding more equity volatility. And that's really the, the issue at the end of the day is people don't want to just add volatility to their portfolio to stretch for a turn. Um, and we're increasingly seeing people looking for ways of, of accomplishing that goal without just making their portfolios a little more jumpy uh, by adding to the risk asset side of the equation. David, just to tie this all together, one big risk people have been talking about is that liquidity does not equal solvency and that we get a cascading wave of bankruptcies that picks up steam later in the year. We have not seen that yet, and some people are saying that we are going to see the more optimistic of those scenarios based on the liquidity in the markets. Do you still see that as a very real risk as we head toward the election season? 
Um, I, I think it's a risk that needs to be on investors' radar. I think the, the chart that's been making the rounds looks at the relationship between bankruptcy filings and the unemployment rate, and the two have been very tightly correlated uh, over the past 20 to 25 years. And so I think people look at that and say, well, if the unemployment rate only comes down slowly, that inherently needs to result in a, uh, in a wave of bankruptcies. But you know, maybe bringing us back to, to where the conversation started, we're just now seeing the Main Street lending facility get up and running. I think that that's going to help uh, address a lot of those issues. So I do think that given the, the support we've seen from the Fed and the federal government over the past couple of months, that relationship may not play out the way that it has historically here uh, going forward. David Leibovitz of JP Morgan. David, always great to catch up with you, sir. Send our best to the team, won't you? Right now, our interview of the day for fixed income and for rates. Stephen Major has been at HSBC for ages, and he has been on, 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 on about the vector, the dynamic of the bond market, and particularly full faith and credit. He joins us now. Stephen, to begin the conversation, bring us up to date on the inertial force of yields lower, and particularly the benchmark 10-year. How low can the 10-year go? Well, our forecast is 50 basis points for year end, so we're we're still some way from that. Uh, I know it doesn't sound very exciting to go from 63 to 50, but the consensus forecast, according to Bloomberg, is nearly 100 for year end. So clearly our view is somewhat different to everybody else. I think we have the lowest uh, forecast on the street. What matters to me is looking through the noise. It's it's not about the, the discussion about whether there's going to be a recovery or not. Let's not confuse uh, bounce with recovery either. Uh, to me, what matters is the long long-term uh, debt dynamics and, and longer-term structural drivers, including uh, the impact of technology and uh, the, the demographics. All of this points to low for longer. And the Fed itself is guiding rates unchanged for, for years into the future. So to me, it's very difficult for bond yields to go up. And, and I, I think that we're stuck here for a long time. By the way, Total return on U.S. Treasuries this year is pushing towards 10 percent. In long bonds, 15 percent. That's not bad for an asset class that's supposed to be a store of value. Better than not bad, Steve, considering where we started the year and people's outlook for 2020 when we came into it. Let's talk about whether the Treasury supply matters. Does supply matter for the long end? Short answer is no. Do you want the long answer? Well, I'm going to give it to I'd you. I'd love anyway. the long answer. <laughs> um, there, there, there's not a client meeting when somebody doesn't talk about uh, QE, supply, inflation. And there's, there's quite a few misconceptions about all of these subjects. Uh, there, there's no lack of demand. And this is uh, 15-year-old economics trying to map the demand and supply curves and looking at the various shapes. To to me, the demand has been huge. Look at the savings rate in the US. We're not exactly sure where it is, but it's getting close to Second World War levels. People are saving. Why is that? Because they're unsure about the future. The money that gets saved gets recycled into bills and bonds through the banking system. So this idea about supply mattering needs to be put in the context of the demand. 
And and I think that that's being missed. It's it's really naive to look at one side of the equation. The same is true of the QE. People look at the Fed's balance sheet and they think that it has to be an inflationary uh, source of, uh, of, of of trouble for the future. People, people are looking at one side of the balance sheet. The, the Fed's purchases do not explain the fact that the yield is low. Um, the Fed's purchases are just part of the whole dynamic. Um, the Fed's been able to buy what they have because banks have taken so much money in in the last uh, few months. Uh, the banking system is financing the Fed's asset purchases. Now, I've heard guests come on your show and talk about printing of money and inflation expectations. This just isn't right. It's looking at one side of the balance sheet and not understanding the whole picture. There's no lack of demand. And we see this for quite some time to come. Stephen, I would love a window into some of the responses that you've gotten to your, your theories and your predictions going forward as they do run counter to a lot of what's out there on Wall Street. Taking what yeah. you've said, is there no limit then to the money printing, to this idea that the Fed can monetize the debt of the United States as the U.S. deficit gets deeper and deeper? Yeah, well, there's um, a lot to this. I, I would say, first of all, it's loose talk to talk about monetization in the same way that some talk about money printing. It's loose talk. It's, it's technically incorrect. There's an asset and a liability. So in answer to your question, there is a constraint. It's it's the banking system. And when you look at this, the, the, Fed, the Fed is probably aware of where that constraint may be. Have you noticed how fast they tapered? from the QE that was uh, started in March. In fact, it wasn't really QE because in, in the first stage, it was reversing some of the QT. It was putting back what was missing into the system and it was dealing with some of the dysfunction in the in the asset markets. Um, but the tapering is, is 90 plus percent from the original level. That's happened without any disruption to the bond market. Isn't it impressive how the yields have been in a 10 basis point range for most of the last two or three months? People don't give it credit for what, for what it's clearly worth. The market is, is functioning very well and looking through the noise. Now, I think right. that it may be that people are victims of 1970s education, looking at the kind of money supply and Friedmanite view of things. I'm not saying it's wrong. It's just inappropriate for the current time. Steve Major, uh, this has been a wonderful discussion, a theory. I feel like we've got to get our new Vixel out and reread it again. That's all fine and well, but for our listeners and our viewers of this simulcast, it's real simple. There's no real return, and the nominal return is Dickensian. It's out of the 19th century as well. That is unsustainable, isn't it? At some point, there's got to be a real rate of return, right? Well, uh, it depends where rates go. It's all about rates. So today we're close to zero. We could go negative. It's not out of the question. So it's a non-zero probability that rates will be negative next year. It's a, a, um, a small probability, but a huge impact. And when you invest, you invest on a scenario basis. You think about all possible scenarios, not one single base case. So it, it seems to me that when we look across the possibilities, rates aren't going up anytime soon. And I think uh, investors will lower their sights in terms of total return. If you can keep your money, that's good news. Keep your capital. Uh, don't lose money. Um, um, maybe a total return of, of single digit 
is going to be reasonable in the, in the next decade. And uh, I think that the problem is, is that people have got used to, to having these huge returns in the equity market. That isn't sustainable. What is sustainable is a reasonable rate of return. Now, so far this year, we've had 9%. I, I imagine that we could get another 2% out of that uh, into year end. Um, then we'll have to rethink for next year. Uh, but I don't think we're looking at a, a huge sell-off in bonds anytime soon. And I think that there are other things to do. You can go into investment grade credit, for example. You can go up the yield curve, which is quite steep towards the longer end. There's a whole load of stuff to do. Steve, when you say rates could go negative, are you talking about the policy rate or are you talking about treasuries? Well, we've already seen treasuries or certainly bills trade negative. It may be dismissed as being technical, but it did happen. You know that Japan and Europe yeah. have got negative rates. It's not out of the question. I think that it's more one for next year. Uh, it's, it's not for this year. Uh, any central bank that says it's truly all in and using all available tools would not, by definition, exclude the possibility. Right, so everything is on the table. And it strikes me that if you're in for a long, drawn-out recession, then negative rates are a policy option. Steve, final question for you, and it's an important one. Do you have mm. more faith in your year-end call on 10-year treasuries or your beloved West Ham avoiding relegation from the Premier League this year? You certainly know how to wind me up, don't you, Jonathan? Um, <laughs> I think, I, I think I've, I've got more faith in the treasury forecast. I'm sorry. I wish I, I wish I'm I was sure that's what that. HSBC wants to hear too, Steve. <laughs> Steve, always great to catch up with you. Steve Major of HSBC on this bond market. Thomas Forte is at D. Davidson, and I'll be blunt about it, folks. He spent a career being more insightful than most on how all this technology matters to us. And he turns that into buy, hold, and sell on different equities and such. But He's a perfect guy to comment on what we've seen in this first half, which is the dominance of Apple and Amazon. Tom Forte, what's so interesting to me is the trees are growing to the sky at Amazon. Do they just continue to grow? So, Tom, great introduction there and always a pleasure being on your show. So COVID-19 has essentially injected Amazon with growth hormone. So you think about e-commerce sales and the strength in e-commerce sales, not only in April and May, but in June. And it's like injecting new life into Amazon from a growth standpoint. So I like your comparison on the trees growing to the moon. I definitely think the trees are growing, but as you know, at some point they have to stop growing. They can't keep growing in perpetuity. The cloud has come to the rescue for Mr. Bezos, but can the cardboard boxes come to the rescue? When they deliver those boxes, and with a new surge of unit growth of boxes, can they bring that down to some form of gross margin or, dare I say, net income? So the challenge for Amazon has been the same as the challenge for Target. When you sell a lot of toilet paper or essentials in general and you so sell fewer discretionary items or, to your point, cloud is robust, but maybe not revenue growth in cloud is as robust, your profits suffer. And when you think about the June quarter for Amazon, they're seemingly doing everything in their power to combat COVID-19, talking about $4 billion of incremental spend, including hundreds of millions of dollars to test their employees. I think the risk for Amazon is if they're not careful, 
they exit COVID-19 with a unionized labor force in the U.S. Tom, are we conflating the tech sector with Amazon, perhaps incorrectly, with the idea that you see the Googles of the world, the Facebooks, the Twitters, they're basically advertising companies. You look at Apple, it is a consumer discretionary purchase, although some people might say that their iPhone isn't necessarily discretionary at this point. Are these things basically more susceptible to a significant downdraft in the economy. Is that going to be present in the pricing going forward? So conflation, that's a brilliant term. And yes, we are. So if you look at e-commerce trends, what you're seeing is the 86.7% of the U.S. that is still employed is preferring to buy online rather than going to a physical store, including for a period of time where physical stores were not an option. By way of comparison, the more economically sensitive advertising-based revenue models like Facebook and Google are seeing contraction. Uh, they're reported a good number for Facebook in April was a flat uh, revenue performance on advertising. So, yes, I do believe conflation is going on, and the trends in e-commerce are not the trends in online advertising. So I'm looking at Facebook shares, which are up more than 7% year-to-date. Are you expecting the gains of this year and a lot of the tech companies, aside from Amazon and Microsoft, to stall out heading into the second half as people start to delineate between the big tech names and the forces they're subject to? Absolutely. And the way that I think about it is, so COVID-19 looks to be a multi-year event. And I think that what you're going to see is multi-year or multi-quarter impact on the economy. Now, I know that the May retail sales data was favorable. The May unemployment was favorable versus April. But I still feel like a strong argument can be made that we're in a depression and not a recession. So to the extent that COVID-19, again, is a multi-year event, I think you may see some of these more economically sensitive names like Facebook and Google start to stall. Tom Forti, I have to go back to your hugely interesting comment that we could see a unionization of the hundreds of thousands of employees of Amazon. Does that blow up the Bezos model? Absolutely. And if you think about the acquisition of Zooks, an argument I would make is it's about automation at the fulfillment center level. So you go back in time to when Facebook was showcasing their drone delivery effort well before it was ready. I think they realized that COVID-19 has shown that they're exposed to physical labor at the fulfillment center front, and it's going to expedite their efforts to try to automate that, which is why I think Zooks was acquired by Amazon, or intends to be acquired, I should say. Tom Ford, we're going to leave it there. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. <laughs>